you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 6. You'll find this Bible reading on page 1071, 1071. And we're going to read from verse 60. Uh, John chapter 6 and verse 60, let's hear God's word. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to, to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. And we pray that the Lord would add his blessing to his truth. Amen encourage you please to keep your, your Bibles open at the passage that we, we have just read. Uh, I've got Connor working, which is really good, and he was uh, painting uh, back at home. One of the jobs that he was doing was painting the garden seats. He told me not to draw attention to himself today or do anything, but uh, here he goes. He, he can't hit me from where he is. He has, he has done a good job with the garden seats. He's done a really good job in painting those garden seats. So I'm not up here complaining or, or doing anything else at, at, at this point. Actually, he has done such a good job, it's now dangerous because uh, you can only work with what you have and a couple of those garden seats were solid and good, but one of them was a bit rickety. But he's done a really good job in painting even the rickety one to the extent that you think it's great. And if you were to sit on that garden seat with any degree of confidence, your confidence would soon give way, literally. Because it's, a, it's a, a garden seat that I've sort of held together over time with a few extra bits of wood and a few extra screws and things. But it's certainly not one that you would want to have a great degree of confidence in. So, but you know that the general, you can expand that out to many another situation, couldn't you? Something that looks good on the outside. And it's all show. And, uh, but when you investigate it a little bit more closely, you realize it's not as good as it looks. Now, I'm going to bring that 
into play with what we're going to be looking at in, in, in the scriptures today. Because I think one of the, the ways that Jesus is, speaks and what he presents to us time and time again is about how we follow him. And sometimes there can be a question that is asked, which is more dangerous? Is it more dangerous to have a slight re involvement with Jesus so that you have a nodding acquaintance, as it were, of who he is? Uh, you are slightly inclined to knowing about Jesus, but you're not fully there, as it were. We can, we can say that, that you're not converted, uh, but that you have a nodding acquaintance with who Jesus is. So is, is that more dangerous spiritually than to be someone who has no interest at all in Jesus Christ and that you are, are, are miles away from the gospel and you care nothing about Jesus, which is a, is a more dangerous spiritual position to be in. Someone who knows nothing about the gospel, cares nothing about the gospel, or someone who sort of has some passing interest, a mild interest in Jesus. You, you nod in some direction, just like if you go back to that garden seat picture, it looks great on the outside, but really underneath uh, there, there's something uh, quite dangerous. So there is, I think, an argument for suggesting that it is worse to have a passing or a nodding interest in Jesus and still not be converted than to be miles away from the gospel of no interest. Jesus used a couple of stories, I think, that illustrate that. There was one of his parables which was centered around a wedding, or at least the, the, the bit before the wedding. And he talks about that that normal Jewish pageantry where they would have had uh, 10 virgin girls and they would have been lighting the, the evening up and they would have been waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. And Jesus goes on to say that there were 10, but you know the story. Five were ready and prepared and five were not because five ran out of oil. They didn't have enough oil in their lamps. And so they were shown up for what they were. He also tells a story about two guys who went out to build and uh, two of them built a, a house, but one we know built wisely and one built foolishly. And when the storm came, the work of one was completely washed away. And I think there is this, this continual thought that, that, that Jesus is penetrating about. Someone, we might say, simply has a nodding acquaintance with Jesus. There is uh, there's something that pulls you towards Jesus, but, but still it's not the real McCoy as yet. And I think part of that may be our reaction to the truth. And so today, I'm not going to do anything that's terribly deep or, 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 or significant in some ways, but I'm just trying to get us to gently probe our own reaction to the truth, the truth that is presented in Jesus and what we actually make of that ourselves. It may be also quite relevant because over the summer period, I think we are, well, a lot of us can be more uh, ill-disciplined than we might regularly be because we've got holidays coming upon us and we haven't got the same routine that we normally have, uh, is that we may even fall out of, of the habit of, of reading our Bibles and, and reflecting through what the truth of God is. And it may just be that we get tired after a while and, 
And so today I'm just going to try and probe a little bit about how we individually respond uh, to, to the truth that is Jesus Christ. So today my, my working title in many ways is simply Jesus, this man who preached truth as the first of, the, of some of the aspects of, of how Jesus is presented to us in the Bible so that we're thinking about who Jesus is and today it's Jesus is the one who, who speaks truth. So I'm going to try and, with the use of this passage, try and bring out some aspects of how the Bible and how Jesus himself is presented to us. And maybe the first of those points is that I think the words of Jesus, as we are presented to us in the Bible itself, is that these words carry an authority in and of themselves. There is something about Jesus and the words that Jesus spoke, and it is recognized by the people who were contemporaries of Jesus that there was something different about how Jesus spoke from everybody else. Uh, back in Jesus' day, there were numerous traveling rabbis, uh, Bible teachers, as it were, religious enthusiasts, who went traveling all around the, the, the countryside, and they would have been speaking. And you have to remember, this is the days before TV, and the, if, if someone novel came, came into town, and someone was preparing to set up stall and speak, they would gather a crowd, and people would listen to them. But the way that these people spoke at times was so different from how Jesus spoke. Ultimately, where I'm going with this, if you turn the page to John 7 and verse 46, because in that verse, we recognize that Jesus' words were, were different from other people and that other people recognized that there was something unique and different about Jesus. Because verse 46 says, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Going back to how we think about Jesus and comparing him with the other uh, religious teachers of his day, quite often what these standard rabbis would do is they would stand up and that they would simply comment about what other people were saying about the Bible, about the scriptures, about God, and that they would simply say, here's what this person says, and uh, let's comment, let's say a little bit more about that. But we know that whenever Jesus spoke, very often he says, truly, I say, not somebody else has said, but I say to you. Or when these other religious leaders would have ended up their little comments and what they were doing, they would have said amen at the end of that, which is carrying this idea as, okay, let it be so. But we know that time and again when Jesus spoke, he didn't just simply use the singular amen, but he used the double, which was this, this truly, truly, this, this idea that there is something unique and different and special about what it is that Jesus is saying. So when Jesus came into a village, as you might say, one of these regular traveling spiritual leaders, Jesus didn't come to, in, come in to engage debate but he came to speak authoritatively and specifically and with the idea of bringing change into people's lives. And ultimately, I think that's the same today. Same today with Jesus himself and also within the church is that we, we would love and we would yearn and we would pray that people would come to encounter and see that there is something unique and different about Jesus' words. 
But at times we might wonder where that authority for change actually comes from. In, in some churches, which may have a more uh, or a stronger emphasis on hierarchy, we might believe that one person uh, is more important than somebody else and that the higher you go up with the chain of command, as it were, is that there is more significance in their words. We Presbyterians don't really do that. There may have been one time when I may have believed in my youthful ignorance that when a moderator comes in, a moderator must be significant, but once you get to be that and then you get to be an ex-moderator, you realize that there is nothing special in the person. Um, so when you realize your own weaknesses, yeah, I, I can understand that. So it's not in, in rank or ability or in learning or even in someone's entertaining power to try and engage with, with people. But rather, I think, and it's maybe just to get us to believe ourselves and to understand that it is the authority is in the words themselves so that when we're actually reading this, that there is something significant that grabs us and arrests us that what is actually here. So certainly, even when I'm at the front, I don't expect anyone to, to change or to be uh, affected simply because of the way in which I speak, but it's rather it's because and insofar as, as it's these words themselves. So we speak the words of God himself that are contained here. There is something unique, there is something authoritative, and that's what we've got to see. But as well as being authoritative, and I believe that's the singular nature of how Jesus spoke, is that what's recognized also here is that the words of Jesus have life. If you read with me in verse 63, what Jesus says is that the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. And that's caught on by the rest of the disciples. You see in verse 68 and verse 69, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And as the words of Jesus are grasped and in that sense not rejected, we, we see that Jesus is the one who is the very bread of heaven. Jesus is the one who, who, who comes that we might have life in all its fullness, who has given his flesh uh, for us and for our salvation that we might know him. And as we receive those words, we know that eternal life is something we enter into here and now. And that we have that certain promise that one day we will meet him face to face and that we will be raised to meet him. But in the meantime, we want to feed as Jesus encourages us upon his life-giving words. Jeremiah gives an allusion. Actually, I'm going to read that verse from Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16. And it's, it's almost like an acted out parable that Jeremiah was doing here. And he says, when your words came, I ate them. And they were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. And there's something very similar in what Jesus is encouraging us to do ourselves when he talks about feeding on him. And we can't feed on Jesus without feeding upon his words, and truly believing is by believing on his words. And it's the assessment then that we give to the significance of these words. At this point, I'm going to read from Psalm 119. 
And I'm going to do this quite slowly. It's, it's more than simply one or two verses. But I want us to listen to how the psalmist views the law of God, the assessment that he has of its significance and wondering then ourselves, what do we actually think about this? Now, I know that you'll agree because it's, it's like that time when you ask the kids and the children's address, but, you know, the answer is always Jesus. We, we know what, what, what we should say or, or, or what, it, what should be our reaction. But in practice, what do we really think about the word of God? So I'm just going to allow these words about how the psalmist views the law of God and then just to reflect ourselves. So just listen to these few verses from Psalm 119 and verse 97 and following. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. See, that's what we think of the word of God. And I, and I assume we resonate with that and we say, yes, Lord, that's what it is. The question then comes at times, how come we are still so irregular when it comes to actually waiting upon God and, and seeking to know what God is saying to us and believing that his word is this wonderful, life-changing truth? And so if we come understanding what, what it means for us in practice when we see that Jesus' words are authoritative. There is something different. There is something unique. There is something that is recognized and has always been recognized about the words of Jesus. And when we see that these words are also life-giving, it is in the words of Jesus that we, that we have eternal life given to us. But ultimately, and my final point is that the words of Jesus do evoke a response. It's late in the day, perhaps, to be coming to... Uh, a bit of background to this passage, but earlier in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, Jesus has been discussing with the crowd, and he has been encouraging them and saying to them something about where he's going ultimately, about how he's going to surrender his life and, and how he is going to give his life. And he is encouraging these people then also to feed upon him. And he says something very strange where he says, you've got to feed upon my body and you've got to drink my blood. Now, we know where he's going with that, with the, with the benefit of hindsight. But back in the day, these people couldn't have understood it. And that's why in verse 60, it begins, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? The people didn't like it. And I think as I read verse 60, 
there is something very modern in all of this. There's something that is very modern in the way in which people respond to whatever is in the Bible. This is a hard thing. Surely this can't be right. This may have been okay once upon a time, but it doesn't make any sense now. We can think about that maybe culturally, and we hear expressions nowadays like uh, expressive individualism is that the most important thing that you can possibly ever do, and the only right thing that you can ever do, is to express yourself exactly as you want to and as you feel you want to. And that's the only proper way to do that. That's what we hear continually. And yet there comes a time, surely, we've got to see when we read the Bible, that the words of Jesus will cut across that. Because if I want to express myself and I believe and I know that I'm a sinner, then the words of Jesus will at some point cut across that. And there will come a point where we will say, either I will go with what I want to do, what I believe, or... I'm going to listen to the words of Jesus, the words of God, so we can understand why people can say so often in their response to the Bible is that this is too hard. But it's not too hard to understand. It's too hard to accept. Calvin, a long time ago, would have written about this passage, is that the hardness that's mentioned here isn't in the message, but the hardness was in the hearts of men. These people may have been offended by Jesus for a whole number of reasons. It may have been they thought he was a political leader and then they've realized it's not working and that, they, they, that Jesus isn't doing what they wanted them to do so they're going to go in, in, in a different reaction, in a different way. Or it could be simply that they were thinking that this is the claims that, the claims that he made that he was better than Moses is what they took offense to. Or it could be this thought about what he was doing, about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And Jesus is saying, well, you know, if all this offends you, you have seen nothing yet. Because he goes on in verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? As if to say, you've seen nothing yet. And verse 62, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? And he's giving this veiled illusion ultimately to how he's going to die on the cross and how he's going to give his life. And he says that's going to be the ultimate offense. And the greatest point of humiliation for Jesus on the cross was his greatest glorification. And then we see the reaction that it brought in verse 66. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And there's the offense that's in the gospel. But the word of God evokes that response. Jesus preached truth, that truth that didn't accommodate itself to other people or other situations, but it was his word, it was his truth, and we face up to that. As I've been saying today, that there, I believe that there is something that is uniquely authoritative about the words of Jesus. There is something that is different about the words of Jesus, even as we read them in the Bible, that was picked up by those that he encountered as contemporaries, that they recognize there is something that is just incredibly different here. And I think one of the ways that we might even encounter that today and ex experience that is that these words actually give life. There is a spiritual life. There is an, an enlivening that comes from the word of God as, as it touches our hearts. Jesus, as he is presented in the Bible, is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we believe this, if we 
believe this in our hearts, it will always evoke that question, so then what about our obedience? In other words, what are you actually going to do about it? That's where the words of Jesus, the truth of the Bible, actually touch us. If this is true, what will you do about it? In all honesty, I don't know where the expression the penny hasn't dropped comes from. I suspect it may originate with an old-fashioned vending machine. You know the ones, instead of just tapping for things with our cards, that you physically had to put a coin into it, and the frustration of when you put your coin, perhaps most likely the only coin that you had and you hadn't any others, and you put it into the machine and it didn't drop down. It didn't engage with the mechanisms of the machine, so your bottle of Coke or whatever it is doesn't drop out, and you may have been tempted back in the day to give it a thump to try and encourage that coin to drop down. Now that may be, or if that illustration for those younger people here means absolutely nothing, you, I'm sure, will still know of that thing in Barry's or Curry's, as it's called now, where you put 2p into one of those, you know those slidey level things? I don't know what that um, machine is called in, in, in the amusement arcade, but it's all covered in two P's and there's two levels of them and they slide in and out and you put your two P in at the top. And the most frustrating thing again is when the coin doesn't drop just in the way that you want it to. Now, whatever the origin of that expression has the penny dropped, we can think about that spiritually in terms of our response to what Jesus actually says. If we are, have an understanding that his words are authoritative, and if we have an appreciation that his words truly give life, and that it's seeking for a response, and in evoking, actually evoking a response from us, has the penny dropped as to who Jesus really is? Because a false understanding of Christianity is one that is only on the outside, as it were. Looks great on the outside. If I go back to my garden seat at the beginning, it's a looking a great job, but there's no way I would sit on the middle one. That's all I'm saying. So if you come and you're going to sit in those, be very careful what you're sitting on. A true appreciation of who Jesus is, is his truth. Has the penny dropped? evoking the response that we come to him, we surrender our lives to him because we know there is no one else to whom we can go. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. That it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is able to offer us any confidence for the future. And there is no one else to whom we can go. And so we come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we still our hearts and reflect upon your word, your truth, and what it means to us. Lord, we, we pray for a work of your spirit in each of our hearts that enables us, to, first of all, to see you, to recognize what is unique and different about you and how you address us. Lord, 
you have said so much about how you love us and you care for us, how you put value upon each of us so that even if we at times may not think much of ourselves, your truth speaks to us and, that, and we know that we have value in your sight. But Lord, your truth still does cut across our lives as we make our response to you. So Lord, we pray that we might in your word see you and hear you and know you. So Lord, even over the next number of weeks, in our times of relaxation over the summer period, which may be slightly less pressurized, there may be less routine in our lives, but Lord, may we still have time to encounter you in your word and to see the life that is in your word and in your truth, that it might touch our hearts. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.